Pray with me. Lord, we come to you uh, bringing all of ourselves in this moment, wherever we are, whatever room that we're in. We bring all of our emotions, whatever we've been feeling this week, whether it's grief or lament or indifference, apathy, uncertainty, anxiety, even joy. Lord, we bring ourselves fully to you right now in this moment. And we ask that you would speak to us through your word. Would your Holy Spirit apply what we hear to our hearts, our minds, our words, and our behaviors? Lord, don't let this be a waste of time, but meet us in this moment. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, who bears fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This psalm is talking about two different types of people, the blessed one and the wicked. And I want to draw out three things for us from this psalm. The first thing is blessed. The blessed one is faultless. The blessed one is faultless. In the very first verse, we see that the blessed one doesn't do these three things. They don't walk in step with the wicked. They don't stand in the way that sinners take, and they don't sit in the company of mockers. And you'll notice that there's this sort of um, progression of movement from walking to standing to sitting. And it's this uh, progression from an active movement to a, a stationary position. It first starts with this motion of walking in step with the wicked, which this text is getting at the idea of of listening to the advice or the counsel of those that don't know God or don't follow God, that you're listening to that advice, you're listening to what they do. And then it moves to standing. You come to a stationary position, but you're still upright and you're standing in the way that sinners take. So now we're moving to behaving in the way of sinners. And then eventually we come to this at-rest position where you sit, you're seated. And in the ancient culture, your seat meant a lot about your identity. And you're seated in the company of mockers. And so what the text is describing is this downward spiral of selfishness in our life that ultimately leads to finding our identity apart from God finding our identity apart from God. And that really is the core selfishness problem that we have, that we're trying to define ourselves or redefine ourselves in the context of things that don't have to do with God. But the blessed one does not take that road. The blessed one is faultless. That's the first thing our text tells us. The second thing it says is that the blessed one is preoccupied with God's law. The blessed one is preoccupied with God's law. If you look at verse two, 
we move from these three things that the blessed one doesn't do to these two activities that the blessed one is engaged with, starting with delighting and then meditating day and night on God's law. And if you break that down to delight, right, is to enjoy, to be satisfied, to, to take comfort in something. Um, they're delighting in the law of the Lord. And then they move on to meditating. And this meditation isn't just thinking about God's law, but actually what the, the original language is communicating is that the person is murmuring to themselves. They're reciting. There's an implication of talking the word of God out loud back to themselves, thinking about it, and then talking it again to others and to themselves. So they're delighting, they're meditating, murmuring on the law of God day and night, day and night, continually, continually. And when you put those elements together, it's describing this preoccupation, this obsession, this passion, this fixation on the law of the Lord. So what is the law of the Lord? Understanding what the text is talking about when it says the law of God is really important to understanding what this passage is all about. When the ancient uh, Jewish readers would have read this and seen law of the Lord, they would have been thinking the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And that isn't full of just instructions and commands, but it's also sort of the story of God's activity in giving um, these instructions to them, seeing how they responded to them, coming to their rescue when they failed in responding rightly to the instructions of God. So it's God's redemptive story told, is told in the law of God. But it's also referring to the loving wisdom of God to give us boundaries to define our relationship with him. Now, you might hear that and you might think that's problematic. That sounds, uh, you know, I don't like that. Why does God have to set these rules and regulations to define our relationship? That feels really restrictive. But when you think about any relationship, particularly relationships as they increase in their uh, value and your commitment in them, there are clearer and clearer defined boundary lines and expectations in those relationships. If you have a friend, there's an expectation that that friend will be honest with you, that they won't gossip about you, that they won't mistreat you. And when someone steps outside of those boundary lines for that friendship, you talk about that. Please don't mistreat me. When you think of a parent that's taking care of a child, loving parents set boundary lines for their children to flourish and grow and become all that they were made to be. When you think about people who get married, they make these clear defined vows in their marriage that define the boundary lines for their relationship and the flourishing of their commitment. And when you take it to our relationship with God, God sets out in scripture, in the law of God, the beautiful wisdom that would define our boundaries that we might flourish in relationship with him, in relationship with other people, and in relationship with our world. So the blessed person is preoccupied with the wisdom of God and the beautiful redemptive story of God and when they are preoccupied with this story, this wisdom, they become like trees that are planted by water that let out their roots and soak up the power and the life and the nutrients of God's spiritual power in us. And they bear fruit and their leaves don't wither. They prosper. 
Now you might be hearing this and thinking, that sounds great, Arul. Thank you. I am in total agreement. We should value and listen to the scripture. I'm great with that. Check that off the list. What's the next point? But the question I have for us is, are you meditating on the entire law of the Lord or are you selectively listening to it? Are you selectively listening to it? Are you listening to what you like and avoiding the things that might challenge you? Are you listening to the things that suit your lifestyle and avoiding what might uh, push you towards growth and seeing outside of your uh, perspective? Are you selectively meditating on the law of the Lord? Especially at this moment in history. Have you been meditating lately on what it says in Genesis 1, uh, verse 22, that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We are made in the beautiful image of God. Past couple weeks, we've been seeing splashed across our screens the filmed threats and murders of black women and men. And it's been leading to outcry in the streets. It's led to anger and it's led to lament and grief. And these are good responses when image bearers of God have that image violated. Because what it means to be made in the image of God, it means that we have intrinsic dignity and worth and value, not based on anything that we ever do or have failed to do, but simply because God has created us. We bear his image. And so it is worth grieving and lamenting these terrible injustices. And when we hear at a time like this that black lives matter, in response to these events and in response to the, the, the systemic racial disparities that ultimately lead to these events, we're making a very reasonable statement. We're hearing a very reasonable statement that only has meaning because of Genesis 1. They matter. These lives matter because they're made in the image of God. Full stop. Amen. Period. End of discussion. Can you hear the cries of our black brothers and sisters to their God as their image is marred? And can you imagine the compassion and the concern that raises in their father, their heavenly father that looks down and acts in history. He does it because they bear his image. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care for his other children that are experiencing oppression or that we shouldn't either. But at this moment, they're crying out for justice and their lives matter because they're created in the image of God. And it's worth lamenting and being angry about this injustice and grieving and praying and interceding and acting. Black lives will always matter because they are made in the image of God. Are you meditating on God's law or are you selectively listening to it? Let me point out one other scripture that is relevant to this moment in history. 
James, the brother of Jesus, writes in James chapter 2. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, then you do right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted as lawbreakers. Your neighbor, as Jesus redefined and expanded the definition of neighbor, is not just people who are like you, who are not just people who uh, share the same cultural values as you or has the same socioeconomic background or comes from the same part of the world as you. Your neighbor are people who are very different than you. My neighbor might be someone who I have animosity and has hurt me. I have resentment towards. My enemy is even my neighbor. To love your neighbor is to love, yes, the oppressor, the one who is that we pray as a follower of Jesus, I should pray and ask that conviction would come over those who perpetrate injustice in our world, who perpetrate racial injustice at this time and have throughout history. I should pray and speak out that they would turn to the Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we should pray for the oppressed, whether they are like us or not like us. If we show favoritism, we sin and are convicted as lawbreakers. Could we murmur that scripture to ourselves this week? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Are you meditating on the law of the Lord or are you selectively listening to it? The blessed one is faultless. The blessed one is preoccupied with God's law. And this is the final point from this text. The wicked are judged. The wicked are judged. If you look at verses four through six in this text, there's this pretty stark contrast between the blessed one who is this flourishing, beautiful, fruit-bearing, evergreen tree planted by this constant life source, and then the wicked who are described as chaff, which is the um, waste product when you harvest wheat. It's blown away. We can't eat it as people. It's, a, it's, a, it's something you would throw away. The chaff, the wicked are described as chaff that is blown away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Their way leads to destruction. And I believe that word for us in this moment is a word of hope and power. That's a word of hope in this moment. The wicked will be judged for wrongdoing. So much of the public outcry right now, the protests that are happening, is because of this feeling that the wicked are getting away, that they're not being held accountable, that wicked systems that per per perpetuate injustice based on race, there are people who sustain those systems and they're getting away. And the innocent are dying and no one's looking out for the innocent. Well, Psalm 1 verse 6 says something different. The Lord watches over the righteous and the wicked, their way leads to destruction. I think peaceful protest and demonstration that calls for the wicked to be held accountable and wicked racist systems to be changed is good and right, and we should call for that. But my greatest hope 
comes from knowing that at the end of time, when God gathers all of the nations before him, the wicked will be separated and they will be held accountable. And as it says in Hebrews, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The wicked will not go unpunished. They will be held accountable. And what gives me the resources and energy to act in this moment is knowing that will happen at the end of time, is knowing that's where history is moving, that God is on the side of justice and righteousness and the vulnerable and the oppressed, and he will punish the wrongdoer. So I can act now. I can pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, because in heaven, you will hold the wicked accountable and the righteous you watch over. The wicked are judged. Let me close and, and tie this together and show us the larger reality that this psalm points to. The tree is a really important image in scripture. Um, there are th actually three important named trees in scripture. And two of them you hear about in, in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, uh, probably very familiar with them, the tree of life that's planted in the middle of the garden. Uh, the, and there's this river that comes up and waters all of the trees, including the tree of life, which its fruit, if eaten, will give us eternal life. And then there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the imagination of the ancient Jew reading Psalm 1, they would have immediately seen verse 3 where it says this, this tree planted by streams of water that bears fruit, that has leaves that don't wither. Whatever they do prospers and there's water that is flowing beside it. They would have thought of the tree of life. They would have also, reading the psalm about the wicked and the righteous, they would have drawn the connection between the choice that the wicked and the righteous have today and the choice Adam and Eve made, the choice that they had because they failed to meditate on the law that God had given them on to eat. They could eat of every tree here. I'm defining the boundary lines of our relationship, but do not eat of this or you will surely die. But they took and they ate and because they chose to disavow God's wisdom, it brought death. And because of their choice, systemic evil has pervaded everything. It's pervaded everything. And it's caused us to actually redefine good and evil on our terms. And we end up calling good evil. And we end up calling evil good. We see unarmed black men killed by unnecessary force, and we say they are to blame for it. Or we say that racist ideologies and systems don't exist, even though the world is run by sinful people. We call evil good and good evil. We've reversed the poles because we've disavowed the wisdom of God. So this psalm takes us back to the beginning and our core selfishness problem, this downward spiral, all of humanity from our first parents till now, we've been caught in it. But it also points us forward. It points us forward. If you notice verses one through three, 
the blessed one. It's singular. But verses four through six are in the plural when it talks about the wicked. For all have sinned and fall short. But there's only one who's been faultless, who's meditated day and night and delighted in the scripture perfectly. There's only one who is like this tree of life, who gives life. It points forward to the person and the work of God himself coming in human skin, Jesus Christ. And it points forward to that third tree, the cursed tree that Jesus was killed on the tree of the cross, as the New Testament writers say in Acts, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God came into the world in Jesus and calls us back to the garden. Out of love, out of love Jesus hung on this cursed tree and took the responsibility for our wickedness and selfishness so that we could be transplanted back to Eden. Did you catch it? He became a desolate tree so that we could become a flourishing, uh, life-giving tree that has this constant eternal supply of life. When he himself was that tree of life, he became the desolate tree so that we could have life eternal. And he transplants us. We have the hope to be planted in that new Eden. Have you meditated? Have you been preoccupied with the scripture, with the end of the Bible, with the last chapter in Revelation where we see this new city, this new Eden? And there it is. The tree of life is there and the fruit is there and the, and the, the river of God is flowing in that city. It's the same image from Genesis, the same image from Psalms, and the leaves are there, but now they are the leaves for the healing of the nations, the healing of the nations. We can pray for healing, racial healing in our time now because there's healing for the nations at the end of time, and we need healing. For the problem of injustice, of, of varied groups and racism, and all the isms, we need healing. It's a spiritual problem. And we need the healing from the leaves of the tree of life, this evergreen tree. We can be with God in the heavenly city through Christ, the Redeemer. Here's the question for us. What, what are you going to choose? Are you going to choose to become preoccupied with the wisdom and the story of God soaking in that life-giving power to love your neighbor, your enemy as yourself? Or will you selectively listen to the scripture? Will you choose to take heart today and not despair that the wicked will be punished and the righteous God will look after them? God is looking out for them. God is on the side of justice and will you choose even today, maybe for the first time, to put your trust in this Jesus, who is the only one capable of naming that selfish spiral we find ourselves in and transplanting us to that new Eden where we can have life and be free of our sin, of our shame, of our selfishness? What 
will you choose? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we need your healing. We need the healing that comes from the tree of life. Would you apply it now in our city? Would you apply it now in our families, in our schools, in every structure and system in our world, God? We ask for that healing, and may we not stop asking for it until your kingdom comes. May your kingdom come in the midst of injustice and despair and sadness on earth as it is in heaven. We need you, Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.